Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. So we are in Psalm 72 today, and if you'll keep your Bibles open there, I'm really looking forward to getting into the message that I've called it, We Need Our King. We Need Our King. This uh, psalm is once again a psalm that is uh, messianic in nature. It looks forward to an eternal king that can't be fulfilled in the king that it's probably specifically talking about historically. So it is addressed historically and eternally. But this time, it gives a different perspective. It's a perspective, for instance, if you're with me in Psalm 2, it also talked about Jesus coming as king. But this one's a different perspective, and I'm looking forward to seeing what that perspective is. Before we do that, though, I have a little bit of introduction before we jump into the text of Psalm 72. I want to introduce uh, just a current application of our day-to-day and, and give a thought that leads us into the need for Psalm 72. My thought that I introduce first is that there's a common theme in inspirational messages that people give whether at graduations or in political realms or whether it be even in churches or in schools, trying to inspire people for more and great things. And a a common theme is to change the world. You ever heard people talk about that? Change the world. Anyone have that at your graduation service? Go out there and, and change the world and make a difference. Well, there are some struggles with that idea of me personally changing the world. First of all, I ask the question, what exactly does that mean to change the world? It sounds great, but what does it mean to change the world? What if I like my world? Or what if your version of the world is different than my version of the world? Or what if I go out and change the world to what I want the world to be, and no one else likes what I got and that I want to bring in? What's the scope of what it means to change a world? I mean, really, I have a hard time just changing the things I need to change in my own life. To try to change um, beyond my, my life, um, just my area beyond that, my own world. What about a community or a state or a nation? The world? It's huge. To try to make a change in the world is a, it's quite a feat to go after. Who decides what needs to be changed in the first place? And in preparation for the message today, as I started thinking about this, I started Googling and looking up like uh, top things that people want changed in the world as I was thinking about this. And there's a lot of different opinions that people had, and I'm not going to go through those, but it just got me thinking a little bit. The truth is we do need change. We do need change. Here's some realities of the world that we live in today. The current world population is nearly 7.5 billion people in our world. 80% of our world 
lives on less than $10 a day. Just to put things in perspective. 80% of our world lives on less than $10 a day. Can't even eat for that. Can't even go to McDonald's anymore for that. Every 10 seconds, a child dies from hunger-related diseases, water, food. Every 10 seconds, someone around the world is dying because of lack of food, lack of water. I would say that that needs to be changed. I, I want it to be changed. One out of nine people in this world are either without clean water or m malnourished. One out of nine. Forty percent of the world's money belongs to the four percent of the world right in our country, America. Forty percent belongs to four percent. We're blessed people. The purpose of this is not to give a guilt trip. It's just to consider the needs of the world. If you make $10,000 a year, you are wealthier than about 84% of the world. If you make $10,000 a year. And I don't know how you can make it on $10,000 a year. Religious zealots continue to attempt to force conversions. It's happened through history. People that have called themselves Christians, people that would be followers of Islam, people that would be of all stripes of different religions have attempted to force people to convert to faiths. And it still happens today. That's a problem. It's an illogical problem. It's irrational and it's even unbiblical to try to force a belief or a conversion. You can't do it. It's impossible. Thankfully, the scripture tells us of such wonderful truths and principles as individual soul liberty. That means every one of us have the right to believe what we believe is right between us and God. And no one has the right to force anyone to believe anything. All we can do is share the truth that we believe is of God and allow others to wrestle over that, to think about it. We can reason it, we can defend it, we can argue it, but we cannot force it. But in our world, that does happen. World powers continue to position, deceive, and politic the world stage, right? Just pay attention a little bit to the news, and you know that nations are constantly positioning themselves for power. Oppression, murder, and abuse continue in our own neighborhoods, not far from where any of us would live, throughout our nation, throughout our world, murder happens, abuse happens, sad stories. People have been hurt and continue to be hurt each and every day that we live. As humans are on this earth, there's a lot of bad things that happen. Now, the message is not to stay negative, but it's just to take a moment to think about the reality that, oh, sure, I, I get that statement, we need change. Destruction of unprotected, innocent babies continues to happen each day under the guise of pro-choice abortion. That's not a political statement. That would be a, a statement of biblical perspective. That I believe that from the Bible that life happens at conception. And so we protect the unprotected. Again, not a political statement at all. Just a biblical perspective. 
on a thing, a reality of life. Unfortunately, millions and millions of unprotected are killed. And I hope one day that we'll look back. We were talking about that on Wednesday recently. I hope one day people will look back at this generation and think that was a generation that, that stopped doing that and overcame that. And that people look back and think, how could that ever happen in the first place? I'm not talking about wise use of, of uh, good stewardship of the relationships of husband and wives and procreation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the actual murder of conceived children. How about confusion of God-given realities that are today, such as birth, gender, creation, life authorities. It's ever spreading and being propagated and even... Even the, uh, I believe through time, the, the attack of the right of parents to be able to train their own children in some countries, it's going to be a battle. It'll be a fight uh, where states try to take control of that and, and find reasons to say that uh, you are unfit to, to parent your children because of these beliefs that you have, that they would call, consider hate beliefs or whatever it may, may be. And so the reality is that we do live in a world that does need change. Psalm 72 tells us who will bring the needed change to our world and how he will lead the change. Part of our problem is, is understanding our role in life. Um, a lot of these things, some of these things we mentioned like water and hunger and things, there's a lot of things that we ought to as a society in the world ought to try to change ourselves. But we do have to know that until what Psalm 72 is talking about, until this happens, there will always be things that need to be changed that we just, we won't fix. Psalm 72 is a royal psalm describing how David's line of kings, how they will lead. David was king of Israel. And God gave a covenant to King David, similar to how he gave a covenant to Abraham. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes here. But he had promised to, to have a kingdom and an eternal kingdom through the line of David. David's king and through his seed, his children, there would be an eternal kingdom over Israel that would bless all nations and eventually even lead and rule all nations. This psalm itself specifically is, as you'll notice before you start reading it, it says a psalm for Solomon. Some believe that it was possibly written by Solomon. Some believe that it was, it was for Solomon, to him, about his reign. And some believe it would be a psalm about Solomon after some of his reign already had taken place. I think it was a little bit more of that, but I don't know for sure. But it was a psalm that gives perspective of this, this uh, eternal reign, ultimately, of Christ. But it begins with the perspective of David's son, King Solomon. 
It looks forward to Christ's righteous and universal and endless reign on this earth that will take place as the Bible predicts. The same way the Bible prophesied of Christ coming and being our sacrifice and as As Isaiah 53 says, our sins and iniquities being placed upon him in the same way that was prophesied and fulfilled. And like it was in other Psalms that we have looked at, like Psalm 22, the return of Jesus Christ, not as our lamb that would bear our sins, but as our king, our Lord, that would bring in a wonderful kingdom where God is choosing to reign on this earth and show us how he would lead this world if he was physically on here and bring full redemption in this world. This passage gives us some perspective into what that will be like. So it looks forward to this king's reign that will be fulfilled through the Messiah, Christ, that is a righteous, universal, and an endless reign on this earth. There's some ways that it parallels Solomon's early reign, and I want to show a few verses to where we can see that. And again, we're going to be jumping into this passage in a few minutes. But the first four verses, their prayer, asking God to help this king, and I believe specifically, historically, Solomon, talking about Solomon, but also describing what Jesus will be like, asking that he would be this kind of king, a king that has wisdom, a king that has an understanding heart. Well, let's consider 1 Kings 3.9 when Solomon became king. I'm going to put that on the screen here. It says, Give ye therefore thy servant, this is speaking of Solomon, praying to God, asking this, Give this, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? When Solomon first became king, God had told Solomon, Ask of me, and I will give to you what you ask. And Solomon asked for God to give him an understanding heart so that way he could discern how to make good decisions between right and wrong for the people that God had entrusted him to lead. What a mature request to ask of God. And even a a selfless request. God was very pleased with his request. And he said, because you didn't ask me for long life and you didn't ask me for, uh, to destroy your enemies and because you didn't ask me for wealth, I'm going to give you those things too. Because you asked for wisdom and an understanding heart because you care about the people that I have given you opportunity to lead and you want to lead them well, I will give you these things too. And here we read in these first few verses, I'll look at some of them. Notice with me in Psalm 72, beginning in verse 1, Give the king thy judgments, O God. Give him thy judgments, thy ability to make good judgment and discernment. And thy righteousness unto the king's son. That's Solomon. But also would be fitting in the messianic uh, 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 focus of his son, the king's son. Jesus Christ, ultimately in the line of kings from David. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgments. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy. He shall break in pieces the oppressor. So we see the beginning of this psalm very much in parallel with how Solomon began his reign. 
We see the anticipation of peace found in verses 3 and 4. And Solomon, being the peaceful one, he had a very peaceful reign. He was allowed to and was told to build the tabernacle for God. So they could worship God there in Jerusalem. David wasn't allowed to build the tabernacle. Because David had done a lot of war. He had, he had shed a lot of blood. Solomon was to bring in a kingdom of peace. And so we see verses 3 and 7 talking about him being, bringing in peace. Then we see him ruling from sea to sea. Notice in verse 8 with me. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea. And from the river, it would be referring to the river Euphrates in their area, unto the ends of the earth. So this is referring to something that didn't happen with Solomon. Never. And hasn't happened yet. It won't happen until Jesus returns. This is talking about the, the rain that goes beyond Euphrates River. It goes beyond the area that would be Israel and the Middle East and Canaan land. At the largest point, it ended there at, at, at Egypt and it went there out there to the Euphrates River. But this is referring to it going beyond that. And that was not fulfilled in Solomon. It, it will not be. We also see presence being presented in verse 10. If you will look with me there in the text. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Simply referring to gifts being brought from kings that are on other parts of the world. Being brought unto them. And that was something that was, yes, fulfilled also in Solomon. But it was also not only fulfilled in Solomon, but in Jesus. Remember his birth when he was born in Bethlehem. And you had those that came from far countries and brought gifts to him. But look with me in 1 Kings 4.24. It says for regarding Solomon, for he had dominion over all the region on this side and the river from Tifsa even to Aza, over all the kings on this side the river. And he had peace on all sides round about him. And so he, he had a large area that Solomon was ruling, and he, was, he had peace. But he, he could not fulfill all of what's talked about in these passages, and no king of Israel ever has or will till Jesus Christ comes. Again, before we had previously looked at Psalm 2 and seen the message where Jesus Christ will come and set up his kingdom, but that was more of a Davidic perspective, and there was more a David-like reign in Psalm 2. If you're here, and if you weren't, it's fine, just follow along with me, but Psalm 2 gives a prophecy of, of the Messiah, who is Jesus, not called Jesus then, but who the New Testament shows us that today, and uh, over 300 prophecies fulfilled when Jesus came during his ministry that were talked about in the Old Testament. And so it's talking about him, and it talks about his return and setting up his kingdom, but that one focuses a lot on judgment. And so if you're here that day, when we talked about that, we went to places like the book of Revelation, and we saw how Jesus would set up his kingdom, and, and there, would, there would be uh, judgment made on those that don't believe and reject Christ. It's a reset button. It's a bit of what David did a lot of. But this passage focuses more on how Solomon led after the judgment had to take place. Now Solomon 
did some judgment very fast, very quickly, early in his reign. And he took care of some people that were chronic problems inside of David's uh, older part of his, men, of his rulership. And he took care of that judgment real fast. But then after that, it was a kingdom of peace. And so in this passage, that's what we're going to see is a kingdom of peace, of righteousness, of God. Of Jesus Christ. God had promised to bless all nations back in the Old Testament a couple thousand years ago, all through Abraham, and to give an eternal throne through David. I want us to see a few of those verses. So look with me, okay? So this is a little bit of backdrop, okay? Bear with me for a moment as we're giving some context to Psalm 72. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, this is God speaking to Abraham. Okay, And he says, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So this promise, this Abrahamic promise is that God would, through Abraham and his, his children, bless all nations of the earth, all families of the earth, all peoples of the earth. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14 gives us some insight here, and it says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. That's the non-Jews. That's all families, all nations. Uh, through who? Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The New Testament, throughout the New Testament, it helps us see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would bless all nations through his seed, because Jesus was born as the seed of Abraham, a Jew. The Bible is not focused on trying to be, say, ethnocentric, where I mentioned it before, where we, we get focused on my ethnicity versus this ethnicity. That's not the point of it. The point of it is that God chose Abraham and his people to bless them and then to bless all people through them. And even the non-Jews that believe on Jesus Christ, that's me and you, are, as the Bible says, grafted into the vine with the Jews, with Jesus Christ, accepted by God. But here we see Jesus being the fulfillment of the promise that God would bless all nations through Abraham. Ultimately, the fulfillment is that Jesus will come again and set up a perfect righteous kingdom. All the things that the people of Israel were looking forward to in a coming Messiah, hoping for. The children wanting to, the mothers wanting to have a, a son, and the fathers wanting to have a son. Why? Hoping that maybe their son might be the Messiah. Looking forward to this, this blessing that God promised and they believed he would fulfill through his people that one day there would be a perfect, righteous king that would make all things right. I was having a conversation, just, I, I love the dialogue we get to have on our Wednesday nights. I was a, having a conversation with Malachi. We were, we were discussing how it's interesting how the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ... And the fulfillment of God's sacrifice, how in the Old Testament it was tons of types of what Christ did for us and would do for us. 
as a sacrifice. Tons of illustrations, but they were hidden. They were mysterious to the people. There are a few passages of the Bible that give it clear, but so oftentimes it wasn't real clear exactly uh, that, that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would not just come and set up a kingdom, but that he would first die, be buried, and raise again. And so the people of Israel were not looking for a God-man sacrifice, what Jesus is for us. They weren't looking for that. But when we were talking, we were, ta- I, we, we were discussing how someone else wasn't looking for that either, I think. Just a thought. This is free. Okay, side note. But Satan, I don't think Satan was looking for a death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I don't know. It would be a good talk to have with you, David. I think you would have some good thoughts about that. Because he, he was, it was hidden so much. And he, pro- he might have thought he had a victory when Jesus was on that cross. But when Jesus was on the cross, his heel was bruising while he was crushing the head of Satan. The primary point here is, though, that the people of Israel, they were not looking forward to this sacrifice to be made on the cross. They were looking for a king to return and bring a wonderful kingdom of peace. And we ought to be looking for that still today. It's something that I, I think we don't look forward to enough. So we're going to jump in and see more of why we should look forward to that. Let's consider some of the passages, other passages about this kingdom that the Bible says Jesus will rule and reign and set up. That will be a kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice, a universal eternal kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2, we'll look at the first five verses. It says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, speaking of Jerusalem, to the house of the God of Jacob, the people of Israel. He shall teach us his ways, he will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. What's that referring to? What's a plowshare anyways? Who here uses a plowshare? And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about taking weapons of war and turning them into farm tools. Taking weapons that we once used to fight with to protect our nations and saying, there's no need for that anymore. Don't have to learn war anymore. We can just turn those weapons into farm tools. Work our lands because we're in a time of peace. This is referring to when Jesus sets up his kingdom. We don't know when it'll happen, but when he returns, he will show us how we can have a thousand years of peace on this earth under his leadership. And it says, O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 of Isaiah says, And there shall come forth out of the stem of Jesse. Jesse's a father of David. Jesus came from the line of Jesse and David. And a branch, capital B branch, shall, be, shall grow up out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make of him, uh, make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. We got a lot of picture of that when Jesus came the first time. How many times did he have conversations with people and he didn't judge just after the things that he saw with his own sight, but he saw the intents of their heart and he would speak about things they were thinking. He would address matters of their heart that no one else could have known, but he knew it. And he will do that as well when he leads and judges. Verse four, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. So this is referring to bringing protection from oppression to those that are abused, those that are uh, taken advantage of. He will bring uh, justice and peace and equity. Verse 5, And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. This is neat. So that, that, that was talking about how he will lead and bring justice. Because we, we want equity, we want justice. But we're just never going to bring that fully into this world till Christ brings it. But he is going to. But then it goes on to say in verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, or the goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a, a little child shall lead them. During this time, there will not only be peace of humans with each other, but there will actually be peace with the animal world. And there will not be the, uh, the, 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 the worry of a child and a lion, but a, a child will lead a lion along. Can you imagine what that will be like? Jesus will be ushering in what, we, what was experienced during the time of Eden with Adam and Eve. He will help us see what he originally intended for us that he only could bring. And he allowed us room to make decisions to reject what he gave in the Garden of Eden. And mankind did reject it. They did disobey. And God has allowed room for us to, to make our own decisions, to do things in our own, uh, that which is right in our own eyes. And look what we get of it. We make a lot of mistakes. And we do a lot of, I mean, people do a lot of good things. There's none good, no, not one. But people do good things in this world. But we also constantly break things and mess things up. And in our attempt to do good, we, we fail at that. Amen? Amen? And here we have Jesus actually bringing and showing what he is able to do, a continued demonstration of God's grace and goodness. And we see this peace. We see in verse 7, And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. Let's talk about a child that's still young, uh, within three years old, and is playing the hole of a, of a viper or a poisonous serpent is what that's talking about. And the weaned child shall put his hand, so a little bit older child shall not only play on the hole there, but actually put his hand on the cockatrice den. That's referring to a den of serpents, of uh, venomous snakes. That sounds horrible. <laughs> I remember playing with a snake when I was a kid. Oh, you don't like that, do you, Vora? I remember, I've told the story maybe once before, but I remember as a kid, uh, you know, we liked to play in the woods a lot when we were kids, and so I remember one time catching a black snake, or uh, trying to, attempted to. We had caught him before, but this one I was unsuccessful, and it was a good-sized one, a good, like, six, five, five feet, something like that, good size, and I reached out and tried to grab it, and it actually, it bit me. But it was a black snake. It's, you know, they're not poisonous at all. So it bit me, but it got my thumb, and I was bleeding down the hand like this. So I, I uh, you know, I was a middle child. We, had, we thought we'd have fun with it. So we'd go back to show mom and just tell mom we, I get bit by a snake, but don't tell them what kind of snake, you know. And so I came back and said, Mom, I got bit by a snake, you know. And, you know, she got all momish. It was fun. It was, it was Kathy. Kids, don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. <laughs> But, you know, this is saying there'll be time they'll be able to do that and you don't have to worry about it. These are snakes that you would consider poisonous and they're not going to hurt at all. There's not going to be the pain that we experience now because it will be like Garden of Eden that Jesus will set up during the, the millennial reign. Life will be very different. It's not something that will just kind of gradually just happen and all of a sudden we're going to usher it in. Some people believe we're going to usher in Jesus' kingdom. We're not going to fix things to prepare things for Jesus. He's going to come and fix things and because God is supernatural. He is able to do what we cannot do. Verse 9 says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So all the world is going to know of the Lord. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people to sit. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So this time of Jesus' reign, as we see here described in several of the passages in the book of Isaiah, and we see it's something that we ought to look forward to, something that almost sounds like Lion, uh, Lion, in the, uh, was that, uh, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe-ish. You, any of you ever seen that? Okay, or, or read them, uh, where the animals are talking and all those kind of things. But uh, this is actually where they got a lot of those ideas from, actually. And so we, we see a wonderful, glorious rain that God brings in in this earth, and so I want to now go to Psalm 72 and just, just, just take a look at what's being talked about here with all of that as a backdrop. Do we all agree that our world does need change? Okay. We all agree that we can't bring that change fully ourselves? We can fix things. We can make things better. But we can't bring in the change that's needed. But Christ will. So first we see in the first four verses a righteous king in Psalm 72. And I want to go through these verses and see this righteous king described. Again, describing, I believe, Solomon, but also the, the future king, the line of kings of David that are ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. And you're going to see that more and more clear as we get further into the passage. You're going to see that it's very obvious this extends beyond Solomon. So verse 1 says, again, give the king thy right, thy judgments, O God, 
So whoever this king is, is going to have the judgments of God. And thy righteousness, the righteousness of God, under the king's son. And he shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. You know, I, I think about a king with such righteousness that we could trust. Wouldn't that be great? Politics brings such a great divide. If one person says, I'm for this leader, then you'll have half the other people say, you're nuts. And then you have other people say, I don't like this person. The other ones are fighting back and forth. The reality is, is you're always going to have that with human leaders. But this leader, Jesus, when he sets up his kingdom, we'll trust and know that his judgment, his righteousness is of God. Because he is God the Son. Verse 3, the mountains shall bring peace to the people. The little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy. He shall break in pieces the oppressor. So you do see some wrath right there. You do see some some, uh, warlike action there. It's specifically poured out on the oppressors. Those that are trying to keep from peace. God is full of love. He is love. He is also holy. Holiness dislikes anything that is opposite of holy. Anything that bring that is an enemy of what is right in righteousness. That's why we, to be right with God, we must come to Him and, and, and kneel humbly at Him at the cross and ask God to make us right, as we were talking about even the hour before this, where Jesus would bear our sins and God would make us accepted in Christ and He would call us His own because Christ alone can make us accepted by God because His holiness says, sin cannot be in my presence. Religion can't fix that. Good deeds and works can't fix that. The baptism in water can't fix that. Only Jesus Christ can. Good karma can't fix that. Doing good enough in each of my repeat lives, as some would believe, to where I get reincarnated and different and different and different to hopefully I achieve a better life. It doesn't do it. That's a bunch of works trying to be good enough to achieve something I can never achieve without Christ. So God's holiness does bring that justice on the oppressor, but we see His love and His nurturing of those that are needy of Him. Again, I, anytime I think of that, I think of Matthew 5 when Jesus started out to saying the kind of attitudes He wanted His followers to have, and the very first one was poor in spirit. Needy is what that's talking about. Spiritually Needy. God looks for those. It's the same as what we talked about recently in Psalm 51. A repentant heart. Those that come with a repentant heart, knowing they're needy, He looks down and He says, Oh, they know they need me. I'll come help. Those that say, I don't need you. Actually, I want what I want. And I'm going to take advantage of the needy. God says, Uh-uh, no. And here when he sets up, Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, doesn't come as a lamb, but comes as a lion. He is going to resolve those problems of oppression. Then as we continue to read here, then we see in verses 5 through 7, an enduring king. An enduring king. Verse 5 says, They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, 
as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. I'd say as long as the moon endures and as long as the sun endures is a little bit longer than Solomon would endure or any other one king outside of Christ. This is talking about an enduring king who would endure as king eternally. Even Jesus today, the Bible says that when Jesus died, he was buried, and he went and led captivity captive. The, 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 the believing Old Testament saints that didn't know Christ yet, but knew Jehovah God and was looking forward to his provision, and now his provision came and met them, and he, and he brought them up to heaven to be with him. And he is now, the Bible says, at the right hand of the Father. Amen. And there at the right hand of the Father, he is king. It's not that he will be king. He is king. He's just allowing us to do our, our, our foolishness right now for a little while. But the Bible prophesies just as clearly as his first coming uh, to Bethlehem and going to Egypt and going to Nazareth and all the, all the prophecies that he fulfilled. It declares that he will come again. And we have to believe that by faith through the evidence he has given in the scriptures and in all the evidence of reality around us that shows what God says is true. Amen. And so we look forward to that coming that Jesus will come and bring. And we see that this is an enduring king. He is king. He just hasn't established his kingdom yet. Then if you look with me in verses 8 through 11, here we'll see a universal king. In verse 8 of our text, it says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from river, from the river, Euphrates, unto the ends of the earth. Again, as I stated earlier, this extends beyond anything Israel has ever experienced. This is not referring to our current day Israel or anything in the past in history, but referring to what will happen in the future. Then it goes on to say in verse 9, They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. You say, what does that mean? That sounds kind of strange. It's referring to all, all these kings, and even those that are his enemies, will submit to him. That is used in other places of the Bible, licking the dust like the dust of his feet or of the ground, meaning they would bow before him. Amen. And it's saying that all these enemies, all these kings will bow before this enduring king, this universal king. Verse 9, um, and then verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents, and the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. That's specifically, again, referring to just simply kings from around the world will come because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. The Bible predicts that Jesus will return one day and will set up his kingdom and everything we just read there will happen where all will submit to him. And he will rule, as we looked at in the first few verses, righteously, justly, with, with, with judgment that is of God, because that is who he is. Then we see in verse 12 through 14, a just king. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also, and him that hath no helper... 
He shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence and precious shall their blood be in his sight. You're seeing a reoccurrence here. God cares about those that are needy. God cares about us all, but those that say, I know I need you. That is, that is the work that he does in our heart. And as we respond to the gospel and we come before him and say, I need you. That, that's what God's looking for, a repentant heart. But God also is saying that he will come and he will take care of those who cannot take for, care of themselves. And then if you look at me in the verses 15 through 17, we'll see here a blessed kingdom. This describes a bit of the kingdom itself. Verse 15 says, And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains, and the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. That's simply referring to there being abundance of, of, of our necessities, abundance of agricultural goods, abundance of fruit of the earth, abundance of wealth. Verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Here we see very specifically references back to what we looked at earlier when we looked at Abraham, the Abrahamic promise that all nations shall be blessed in him. When Jesus does return there, all nations will consider their world blessed because of him. Because of how he leads and because of his, his prosperity that he brings and his blessing. And then we see in verses 18 through 20, a kingdom of God alone. A kingdom of God alone. Look at me in verse 18. It says, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of Jesse, the son of, uh, of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And that closes the second book of five books of the books of, uh, of the Psalms. It's broken up in five different books, and this closes that last, the second of the five. And we see this ending simply saying, this is a, this is a work of God alone. And we just wanted to take some time today to exalt the kingship of Jesus, not just his judgment. Again, we did this when we were in Psalms 2 recently and some other passages. But this time we saw things that we didn't see there. It was a focus on his peace, his righteousness, his justice, his compassion, his love for those that are oppressed, his help. The fact that we'll all consider when Jesus does set up his kingdom and will no longer call a certain person president or king or prime minister for people around the world, but rather we'll call one king, our king, Jesus, and all the kind of things. You make a long list of all the problems that we want fixed, and he's going to fix them. Amen. He's going to make them his way. Now, he won't necessarily do all. If we create a list, he won't necessarily do our list. Because God's list isn't often our list. But he'll fix things. He'll fix the climate too, by the way. Because after that, after that, he's going to set up a new heaven and a new earth. And so you're talking about global warming. The Bible says that it's going to end with 
a baptism in fire. He's actually going to destroy the old, old earth, and he's going to create a new one that's after that thousand-year reign. These are all things that are prophesied in the scriptures that will happen. So, yep, I do believe it, and I do believe it's going to happen. But Jesus will fix all things and make things right. And I just want to take a moment to look forward to his kingship. And to stop worrying so much about how things just won't get, you know, why aren't things better right now with the leaders we have around the world today? We are on a world stage, you know. It's, we're not, America is not the only place. There's a global world and a lot of leaders and a lot of politicking. And there, again, there are good people, none good in the sight of God. There's good people and there's people trying, but there's constant failure, constant wrong. And I don't have to get so worked up and frustrated like, oh, you know, the world gets caught up in that because if 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 the world is thinking of the framework of their whole life outside of God, that's un, that's to be ungodly. It's the, the whole the whole thinking of how this world operates is is take God out of the equation and the scriptures out of the equation. Then it's natural to think, you know, it's all about, you know, we got we got to preserve this earth. We got to we got to mitigate our resources uh, uh, and then we got to pr- prepare to be able to take resources from Mars and all these other places, because if we don't, we're going to, you know, we're going to expire. We're going to be like what what some would believe uh, the other universes that happened before us. And and we're going to we're going to we're going to implode. And, you know, that's kind of the idea. And again, I'm not trying to mock people. That is a natural way of thinking. If you don't think God is in control and that he'll set up his kingdom and that he that 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 until he does return, we're not going to blow up. You know? I think we should be good stewards. I think we should be, scientists should keep doing research. We should uh, still continue to try to get to places like Mars. Go for it. I think all those things are great. Just as long as we remember that the heavens declare the glory of God, not the glory of us. And just as long as, as we keep in mind that I don't have to fret and get worried and consume with control. That's so much of our life, isn't it? We try to bring control into this world. And, and knowing that Jesus set up his kingdom, that can make us go back and say, okay, you know what, then what? Okay, if I don't have to try to do risk management for the universe or even for the kingdoms, what can I do? And then you can think about, hmm, I can lift up my king. Hey, if he's the one that's going to fix everything, I can lift up my king. And really, that's what this life is about. (laughs) Believing that he did come, believing he will come again, and that he's going to make things right, and let's be good stewards, let's innovate, let's try to do great things, but let's not get so caught up in that to where we think we're going to fix it all. Because let's know we're not. Make your job better, improve your systems, be creative, all those things. I mean, God gave us that ability. It's a wonderful thing. We're not minimizing that. We're just putting it in its proper context of life. Three simple applications that we'll bring to a conclusion, and these are just simply thoughts that you can take from the idea of Jesus being our king. I'll just place them on the screen let you consider these. The first is that we ought to desire Jesus' rule. Amen. Again, this this text is prophesying of a king that will have no limits all the way to the end of the earth and a king that will have no end of his reign. Jesus. And there's peace and justice and judgment. 
When's the last time you desired to say, you know what? I was thinking about this. I was I, I spent a bit of time in just prayer after just trying to fill myself with the text. And I was just trying to think. I was sad in the bed. I was thinking, I don't. I don't desire for Jesus to return and, and make things right enough. I'm, I often get too consumed with trying to do my things, you know, uh, be successful in my areas and of ministry with our missions agency and pastoring a church and loving my family and children. And I need to I can't lose sight of those kind of things and improve our business and all those kind of things. But sometimes it's helpful to just say, you know what? It'll be great when you're here, Jesus. It's a good idea to say, you know, we need you. And then I took some time to think about, I have it good. I thought about how, remember we talked about how, the, uh, I think it was 40% of the income of the world is in 4% of the population in America. And I thought, you know, a lot of times the reason why I'm not begging God for, you know, something better for Jesus to return is because... I've got it good. I mean, I'm not worried about someone coming in and raiding my home, taking my wife away and abusing her and killing my children. I, I don't I'm not concerned of that. I, 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 I'm not concerned of a, of a dictator. I, I know there I know if you read some of the commentaries, you'd probably say you would with our president. But um, I'm not concerned of a dictator coming and, you know, just destroying our country. Thank God for the different separations of power in our Constitution and the things that we have that help us restrict power so that way we can endure longer. I just think I'm a, we're blessed people. I've traveled to 15 different countries. I've been to places of communism where you don't have the freedom you have here. I've been to China. We didn't meet openly like this in our church. We met in a home church. I've been in churches where you had to go out and, and visit people who lived on houses that were built up off of free land, off of water, next to, next to drainage water. And they lived in a little shack and you had a whole family in just like a, a room. And I, th I think of how good we have it. And I think, you know what? Jesus is going to make it better. I hope I don't make it. Right. He's going to make it right. That's right. But I hope I don't get so uh, satisfied with the blessings that God gives that I don't look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And get so consumed with trying to add to my life that, that, that I don't desire what he brings. Secondly is seeking his kingdom. Matthew uh, 6, Jesus talked about seeking first the kingdom of God, seeking first his kingdom. And he talked about how all these things that we tend to seek after when we, when we think of life with God outside of the equation, all those things that, you're seeking, that people seek after, he's like, God will bring those to you and take care of you if you seek him first. That doesn't mean you can't lay around and be lazy and not do the things you must do, but it's saying seek first the kingdom of God. I was thinking, you know, when I look at Psalm 72, I was just thinking about, I need to seek that kingdom right there. It might not be established yet on this earth, but I can, I, I can invest in the kingdom of God by investing in the, the people of God and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and helping share that with the lost and not just getting consumed with my kingdom.
What of all the blessings that we have, how much of that do I look at and say, where can I invest in the kingdom of God? Talents, treasures, time, relationships, opportunities. Look at those and say, I'm going to stand before you, God. I think about that. God, I'm going to stand before you one day. I want to have invested in your work. And lastly is to exalt Jesus today. Sure, he's not king now, but he will be. Ex- he is king, but he hasn't set up his kingdom. I'd like to exalt him as though he has. I like my words. I like my lifestyle. I like the way I operate. I like my choice of entertainment. Everything to be something that someone could say, oh, you're a child of God, a servant of the king. And I can say, you know, he is good. He is gracious. I serve him because he's worthy. We ought to desire Jesus' rule, seek his kingdom, and exalt Jesus today. Don't wait till Psalm 72 is fulfilled. Exalt him today. I'm going to invite us to bow our heads and close our eyes and just take a moment to think about the message today of Jesus being a peaceful, righteous, perfect, just king. And how we ought to look forward to that. This is kind of like, it can be a message that kind of like just blindsides, almost like you're running down the road, uh, a field, and next you know it, a football player just, bam, just gets you out of nowhere off the side. You had no idea, didn't expect it. Because a lot of our life, it, it gives no thought to Jesus being our king. We want him to be our savior. We want him to give us the things that we want. We want him to answer our prayers. We want him to put more money in our bank account. We want him to fix things. But making my king says, you know what? I want your peace, your justice. I want you to make things right. And until you do that on this earth, I would like you to do that in my life today. All that begins first by looking back at his first coming. When Jesus came, not as a lion, but as a lamb. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. Why did he do that? He did that so that way we could be redeemed. Our sins could be paid for. We could be accepted by God because of who he is, not because of who we are. Your following Jesus as king starts with first believing on him as your savior. If today you don't know for sure if Jesus is your savior, may I encourage you to trust him today. Turn from your way, your belief, whatever it is that you're trusting in, and turn to Jesus and know that good, your good acts that you and I try to do is not enough. And your church and my church is not enough. The only way I could be accepted by God is by what God already provided on the cross when he paid for my sins, he paid the wage of sin, that's death. If today you've not trusted Christ, turn to him and come to him with a repentant heart, a heart that says, God, I need you. I want to invite you today to come to Jesus. He will receive you. If today you say, I know Christ is your Savior, my Savior, let me, I invite you to come to Jesus and say, 
be my king. I want your judgment. I want your authority. I want to trust that you're right. And Lord, I look forward to when you make all things right on this earth. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.